when we rode across the Atlantic Ocean, there was so much to get ready for that. And we were so stressed and busy and tired that when we set off, we all just felt a huge relief. We thought, ah, oh, now we're out on the ocean. This is so much easier than being back on land. All we have to do now is just row the boat. There's a website called deathclock.com and it calculates your day of death. September the 8th, 2055, and I put it in red, death. I was out walking around a wood and I learned that in this wood I'd been to was a thing called a Dean Hole, up to a thousand years old. I thought I'd seen everything in that wood. I hadn't. It reminded me that however much you try to see, you're always going to miss so much. There's just an infinite amount of potential for wonder in every single map if you look closely enough. Thank you so much for doing this, Alistair. Like, I love all the different challenges you've done. I love the micro adventures. I love your new book about sort of you traveling around just your local area. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm glad we sorted out the time zones. It's a nightmare. I, it's so hard. And it's extra hard because in Britain, we move the time an extra one hour backwards or forwards for uh, in spring and then autumn. So that then always confuses me as well. I have a friend that I do these weekly Zoom calls with, and he's from London. And we also have daylight savings. So like uh, the difference changes by like two hours yeah. at, at, a, at a certain period of time. I was... um. For a book I wrote a few years ago, I managed to get an interview slot with an astronaut. And I was so excited to talk about adventures to space. And then I messed up the time zone and missed the Zoom call and they couldn't fit me in again. And I was, it's so, ah, they were very sympathetic. We're, like, we're really sorry. I know time zone calculations are hard, but we're kind of busy flying to the moon now. So the end was, ah, oh, painful. Oh, no. How long ago was that? And what was that book that you were writing? I was writing a book called Grand Adventures, which was about how to go and have different sorts of adventures, you know, cycling adventures, walking adventures, crossing oceans, stuff like that. And I just thought it would be quite a fun final chapter to have. Here's how to go to the moon <laughs> um, sort of um, adventure chapter. But um, yeah, I missed my chance. Over the last year, I've been sort of reading more and more sort of adventure books and I've been just like getting more and more fascinated. I've been following like people like Mike Horn or Rana Fines, and then these old travelers, this guy named, I think, Ibn Buttota or something. He was like a Muslim that traveled through. Yeah, you know exactly who he is. And just reading these stories, and it's like, wow. Yeah, Ibn Buttota, Marco Polo is the very famous old traveler, isn't he? But Ibn Battuta, yeah, he's the sort of Muslim uh, version of that, went all over the world. And incredible to go and uh, go from where he lived in, and see and like elephants for the first time or something. I mean, we, for us now, life in a way is so boring that we all know what an elephant looks like. But imagine if you never knew one existed and then you get to India and there's an elephant. Mine just, oh, it was just astonishing. But yeah, uh, Ranulf Fiennes was one of my early adventure heroes. He's a real sort of old fashioned tough guy, isn't he? But I, these days I'm quite a big fan of your, um, of um, Australian uh, Bo Miles. Have you come across him? Bo yeah. Miles, have have a look at him on YouTube. He does kind of sort of silly challenges, but with a deeper bit of meaning in there. And he used to do big world adventures like me, but he's now more into just trying to encourage people to explore their backyard. So yeah, he's great. Um, for example, he has a he did one film about he wanted to run a marathon, um, but he decided to do one mile every hour for. 26 hours because one mile takes I don't know, let's say 10 minutes and then for the other 50 minutes he'd do a job so he'd tick off a load of jobs um over and he filmed it as well so he's doing all sorts of things like repairing a bit of his house then he'd run a mile or 
um yeah Bo Miles check him out one thing I noticed about you Alistair you sort of are, you're pretty on top of like social media like all these other sort of travelers they're a bit older so they have no idea what to do and you're like posting consistently um you're posting YouTube content that's meant for YouTube and you're posting Instagram content that's meant for Instagram so you've been sort of able to navigate the social world as an explorer and traveler yeah, I try to. I mean, as you will know, to do social media well requires a lot of work. So you have to you have to decide whether to do none of it, like be an old fashioned explorer and get your fans and your money from elsewhere or do a tiny bit of it and sort of automate things, um, which saves you a lot of time, but doesn't really work particularly well. Or you commit to, right, I'm going to make some effort on this. But I try to balance because uh, I try. So if I post something online, I try and automate it to go onto as many different places as possible. But for the stuff that's important and I care about, then, yeah, I have to make it for specific channels. But there are so many channels and there's so you could spend all day doing that. So you have to draw a limit. So, for example, I've decided not to begin TikTok. I know that TikTok is taking over the world, but I'm not, I'm thinking I haven't got the energy for a new social media channel. I'm too old for TikTok. <laughs> so that's me sliding now towards being an old explorer but for now I try and work hard on another aspect of that I suppose that's interesting for me is the way these channels come and go so 10 years ago when I was really trying to grow micro adventures it was all about Facebook that was huge now when I put something on Facebook nothing no one pays any attention to it so now it's Instagram currently is where I get most of my responses and things but who knows what that will be in 10 years so that might fade. So you have to not put too much effort into each one, but also build your own individual email list. I think I still think that's a really powerful tool that will uh, hopefully stay around for a while. So the, the old email newsletter, it's old fashioned, but effective. Alistair, how does the, I know recently reading, you know, Randolph Fine's book that the old school adventurer was a lot of, you have this idea of this epic challenge, you pitch it to a bunch of companies, you can see who can, you know, sponsor it. You reach out to a bunch of PR sort of news sites and see who would sort of tell that story. And you'll just do that every 10 years. And it's sort of like, it's a one project after the next. Is that how things are still done with the modern day sort of explorer or has it changed drastically? I think it depends what the project is. So for example, if you're going to go and try to climb Mount Everest, let's say, you're gonna be spending, let's say, 30, 40, $50,000 on that. So unless you're rich, then you need to go get that money from somewhere, which then does require going around all the companies and seeking sponsorship. And personally, I find that incredibly painful and tedious and boring. And you're putting so much of your hopes on other people then. And it's endless meetings of, oh, this sounds amazing. Yeah, we'll definitely support you. And then you then you follow up later saying, um, where's my $50,000? And they say, oh, actually, we've had a think. And then you're back to the beginning again. So my personal preference is just to do the opposite style style of adventure, which is to just save up your own money, whatever you've got, and just go do something cheap with the money that you yourself have. And that way you get to keep control of your adventures. You're not just waiting for years for the next big thing. So I would much rather just save up $500 of my own money, go get a job, save up $500, and then see how far I can ride my bike for that so that's that's the sort of level of adventure that interests me more and then when you go ahead and go on that bike ride with the 500 dollars you saved up what's the post adventure sort of look like is it you organizing all your footage and creating youtube videos is it you trying to write a book out of that it's you like what's that post adventure behind the scenes look like 
Um, that's interesting. When you started to ask that question, I thought you were going to ask about the personal and emotional uh, impact of coming home from adventure, uh, you know, the sort of post-adventure blues and how you get back to real life. That's what I thought you were going to ask. But actually you asked, which is an important part, but you asked about another side, which is how this then becomes work for me. So I've made my living out of doing adventure stuff for a long time now so what I try to do is to still keep the adventure as adventurous and pure as possible and by that I mean that when I go off and do the adventure I try to just really experience what I'm doing and really enjoy it but of course I have to take some photos and record some video as well but I don't worry about all of that until I'm home I don't I try not to have to share stuff to social media whilst I'm out in the wild. I want to be away from the internet and away from phones. Then when I come home, it's a case of do some laundry and then it's make a film, write blog posts um, and perhaps write a book. And then if you write a book, that's a long process, roughly a year. And then when you finish the book, then you have to then start to market the book. So try and sell it to um, get get magazine articles, try, go on podcasts, all this sort of stuff. Eventually that's out. And then finally, probably a couple of years down the line from the actual adventure it's finished and that's when you then start to think hmm, what's next and then then that cycle begins again tomorrow afternoon i'm sort of flying down to tasmania i have like a 10-day sort of road trip i'm going to drive around the island and usually like the week before any trip i'm like just cramming and i'm trying to catch up and get on top of things and just like i haven't packed my bag yet so i'm going to figure that out tonight and then when I come back from the trip, it's like a week of like unpacking, taking out all the SIM cards, organizing all the footage. And then it takes me like probably a month to get back to sort of baseline of like consistent work. And I don't know if that's something you experience as well. Do you have any tips for that? I don't know if I have any tips for it, but I definitely experience the, the same thing. And, you know, just this, it's so uh, you're talking the evening for me, it's early morning. This morning when I got out of bed, I sort of gave myself a a talking to because at the moment I've, I've just finished writing a book so I'm doing the sort of promotional round at the moment podcasts and social media and things about this book but I said to myself this morning right it's, it's time now you've got to stop this you can't just spend another day on Instagram or Twitter talking about your book it's time to stop that and begin writing a new book so it it's quite but I'm finding it hard I've been wasting two three weeks really not quite getting on with the whole new project. So I have no advice for you on that, but I hope that makes you feel less alone in the challenges, just getting back into the groove of things after a big project comes to an end. You're right. Like thinking about like today, yesterday, even a bit the day before, sort of three days leading up to this trip, I'm just feeling so overwhelmed and I'm getting paralyzed. Like I'm scrolling through YouTube, I'm burning through precious time. And, and I sort of usually crash right before a trip. Um, and I guess that's sort of what has happened. And yeah. I definitely find that getting ready, say for an expedition is so busy. There's so many things to do and you end up inevitably going to bed stupidly late the night before packing ridiculously last minute and you turn up to the start of an expedition when you should be really fit and ready to go and strong and actually you're just so tired that you can't wait to begin the journey just so that tonight you can get a good night's sleep in your tent so um i remember when um when we rode across the atlantic ocean so four of us in a small little rowboat in the atlantic there was so much to get ready for that and we were so stressed and busy and tired uh, that when we set off we all just felt a huge relief. We thought, ah, oh, 
now we're out on the ocean this is so much easier than being back on land all we have to do now is just row the boat and if we forgot to do a job it's too late if we forgot to bring an item with us it's too late there's no shot for 3000 miles so now all we have to do is just row and sleep and boy this is so much easier than real life and i think a lot of explorers adventurers a secret they might uh, not be willing to say is that they we go away on adventures because they're so much easier than dealing with real life that is so true alisa what's your relationship like with death um like <laughs> i know that's a big term um it feels like every time i've sort of gone out and, and sort of done different trips and mini adventures and, and the, the few one or two times i think that you know i've gotten very lucky and very fortunate it feels like the universe always sort of comes in at the last moment and saves you and that consistently happens and this major growth and realization that comes for it and ironically i keep yearning to push the limits and sort of get back to the boundaries um and that's sort of my sort of relationship so far and it probably will change over the next few years but i wanted to get your thoughts gosh well this this you've done well this is a podcast first question which is excellent i like podcast first questions when i started doing big adventures i guess in my early to mid 20s i was really driven by a fear that time was running out i felt a pre which i suppose is the pressure of death i felt on me much more than all of my friends at that sort of age and that really drove me to think wow there's so much i need to do i've got to get on with this i've got to get on with this i'm getting old life's running out so i was very uh, driven in that sense by death which i think actually comes more from a love of being alive rather than a fear of being dead so i don't actually worry about being dead to, to me when i'm dead that's it all goes black and that's the end and there's i don't worry about that at all but i love being alive so much that that um, motivates me to to crack on and get stuff done. In my in my calendar, I have a funny little thing about death. So there's a website called deathclock.com, which you type in your date of birth, how old you are, your gender, your height, your weight, whether or not you smoke, if you drink alcohol, and it calculates for you your day of death, deathclock.com. And I suppose in a way, that's kind of a best case scenario, because who knows, I might get run over by a tractor tomorrow. So but it's calculating it for me. And I've put that into my Google calendar. I think it's something like September the 8th, 2055. And I put it in red, death and all future dates, because um, I did that. It's sort of a bit of fun, but equally it's a reminder to me that anything I want to get done, if I want to write that novel that everyone always dreams of, I've got to get it done before September the 8th, 2050, because after that, it's not going to happen. So, so in that sense, uh, death, does motivate me a lot but on my actual adventures I really love being alive so much that I don't really take big risks so I'm not a risky adventure adrenaline junkie and you were talking to a uh, recently to a lady I forget her name this climbing enormous crazy mountains and um she clearly loves life and is thrilled by that but for me I'm like that's that's a bit too risky for me because I, I I'm uh, I'm not willing to push quite that close to the line see because you've done some pretty crazy adventures like rowing across the atlantic cycling super long distance across like continents and and like you were, i think i saw a clip of you like going through the desert like those are pretty pushing the boundaries they yeah they're quite they're they're quite big journeys but there's an interesting comparison and things like that between 
whether they're actually dangerous or if they're just perceived to be dangerous. So between actual danger and perceived danger. And what I mean by that is, let's take rowing the Atlantic Ocean. Um, that sounds like a dangerous and frightening thing to do, doesn't it? You could be out at sea, you can, if you fall off the boat and the boat drifts away, you're dead. Nothing can stop that. If a, if a storm comes in the night and you fall overboard, you're dead. The end. And that sounds very dangerous. But actually, so long as you're you stick to the protocol. So if the weather's bad, you wear a harness and you keep clipped on to the boat. If you do that, you can't fall overboard and therefore you won't die. And eventually, if you just sit in that boat long enough, it would eventually drift all the way across the ocean and bump into the Caribbean on the other side as though you were a coconut or something. So eventually you'll get there. So actually, as long as you do things properly, it might seem dangerous, perceived danger, but it isn't actually dangerous. And that's the distinction I tried to make in my challenges. So, for example, you won't see me doing that, that sort of crazy wingsuit flying. You see people jump off a cliff and fly with those squirrel suits. Um, even the YouTube videos terrify me of those. So for me, that is actually dangerous. And therefore, the, the risk reward ratio in that is not one that I personally am willing to take. Have you been or are there any stories of you getting accidentally in dangerous situations and sort of plans sort of diverged? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. So when you when you spend a lot of time in wild places, then things can go wrong, I suppose. Um, probably the most dangerous things that I've done in my life involve not the wild places, but the times when I've been interacting with other humans. So probably the most dangerous thing I've done was cycling around the world, which just required that every day, some idiot driving the car wasn't just checking their phone as they drove past me and hit me off my bike. So that's, that's quite dangerous. And also, importantly it's beyond my control there's nothing I can do when I'm cycling along about some idiot driving badly so there's that aspect and then of course there's the risk of um dangerous humans meeting some human who wants to do you harm um but my experience of traveling around the world was that before I started to travel I worried a lot about the human danger I think about some country I'd seen in the news and I think oh when I get there that's gonna be really dangerous because the people there are all evil and horrible and scary and then I'd get to that country on my bike and I'd discover that oh they're all perfectly nice normal people just like every other country I've been to so traveling I'm sure you've had the same feeling traveling is so great for just breaking down those preconceptions and actually the world didn't feel dangerous and frightening to me once I was out on the bike and pretty much usually felt safe welcome at ease at least as much as I do in the country where I grew up so yeah, traveling's good for that, isn't it? You being a very sort of calm person as well as a great communicator, are there any scenarios where that really basically saved you? You were able to like talk your way and calmly sort of get out of a bad situation thanks to that skill and ability? I think if if I have that, I think it's very much a learned skill. And traveling was something that did a lot for me was building my self-confidence, making me better at um, being confident to communicate and talk with other people um, and one of one of my main principles when I was cycling around the world was that if ever I felt like being angry or shouting at someone or punching them a much better tactic would be to just smile at them so if someone was getting angry at me the temptation is to get angry back but when you're thousands of miles away from home or even if you're in your home street there's a danger in elevating a conflict and I would always try to just be will be the one who's willing to smile back down 
chill out. Get, I'll just say goodbye. I'll get on my bike. I'll pedal down the street. And then maybe I'll pedal really fast and we'll never see each other again. So, um, yeah, smiling when you feel like getting angry is a good good way of solving a lot of problems, I think. And, and, sorry, so, and in terms of communication, I think that was possibly the the most useful skill in traveling around the world was being able to read someone else's character and personality and then try to match that. So sometimes people want to have nice, quiet, gentle conversations. Sometimes people are a bit more hardcore and frenetic and, and then I'd rise up to meet that. So I think I, I've, I sometimes think of myself as being a bit like a social chameleon. Like I think I'm quite good at just melding into whatever the situation is. So perhaps if you think I'm being calm now, that's because you radiate this aura of calm competence yourself. So we're just matching each other. Thank you. How old are your children and are they sort of at that age where they're sort of doing their first international trip or have they far gone past that age? Um, and what is it like as a parent that, that loves to explore and go off and do things on your own? <laughs> um, so my children aren't at that age yet. They're, they're uh, just heading towards uh, teenage years. So they haven't really been off uh, international exploring, certainly not on their own yet. Um, We've been so I live in England, so they've been on holiday to places like France, but generally we travel around the UK. And sometimes I feel oh, I should be one of these parents that takes my children on a huge round the world adventure and shows them elephants and all sorts of things. But then another uh, other times I think life is long. Don't need to do all of that stuff before you're 18. Um, I certainly hadn't really been anywhere interesting till I was almost 20. So uh, so they haven't done anything particularly different to a lot of, say, British kids, really. Um, and then your other question about uh, how I how I find that as someone who likes going off. Um, I've I've found it really difficult to be both an adventurous spirit who just wants to go off out into the wild and often wants to go off into the wild on my own, whilst also wanting to be someone who is at home every day helping the kids. And that's sort of the, the tug, the pull between those two very different lives is something that I found hard. And it's something which, for which the, the micro adventures I've been doing, these sort of short, simple local adventures has been a way to try and find an overlap between those two circles, whereby I can try and make all the parts of my life work more or less. One thing that, you know, you hear people constantly say, it's like, you know, I don't wait until I get that first house before I have children. I don't wait until I can travel more before I have children. Do you think that's true? That like, has having children kept the amount of travels the same? Has it actually increased the amount of time you've traveled or has it actually decreased it because now you're sort of looking after your kids? <laughs> I'm enjoying the, the changing directions of your questions. We've now, we've now become a parenting podcast for which I feel spectacularly unqualified to be to offer any sort of expert opinion so but with that disclaimer in mind there's so many different ways you can do things of course some people would enjoy having kids and taking them off on adventures other people might think that you know having kids then gets in the way of their adventures and they're better off to to get it done earlier to do their travels and adventures first and then have the kids i'm i'm not going to say what the correct answer is on that but i will say that i certainly underestimated the impact that kids would have on my life. I pretty much assumed that I'd have these cute little kids running around and that'd be fun. And equally, I'd just still have amazing adventures the entire time and I'd get loads of sleep and life would be very easy, but it'd be kind of fun. Kids are great, but they completely turn your life upside down. So that's a bit of a cop-out answer. There's no right or wrong thing, but it's certainly uh, hard. <laughs> 
One thing I do love about your approach to adventures, you've sort of taken an approach where you're trying to get the everyday person to travel with the micro adventures with your recent book about sort of local adventures. And I was like, wow, like you're sort of really passionate about making adventures as easy as possible. I think there was a YouTube video on fear. You're talking about the fear and how people are often scared to go on adventures and you sort of are passionate about getting the everyday man into adventuring, male or female. Yeah, absolutely. So trying to encourage more people to have more adventures more often wherever you live and regardless about how little time you have or how little money you have or what expertise you have. The big project that I've been working on for the last year and writing a book local about it is exactly the idea of trying to show that there is nature nearby wherever you happen to live and that wherever you live is interesting if you decide to treat it as though it is interesting to open your eyes to be curious to what's around you so you know if we we both enjoy traveling and i think a great thing about traveling is you get to some other country and suddenly everything becomes fascinating the way the place smells the bird songs the way people dress everything's interesting and then you get home and it's like uh, home's a bit boring uh, boring boring i can't wait for my next adventure and what i've been trying to encourage with local is to say where you are right now is really interesting if you just open your eyes and choose for it to be interesting. So you now are in uh, in Sydney, uh, you've got the shutters down over the window, so I can't quite see, but I would love now to just stick my head out of your window and see what was out there on your local street, which for you might be kind of boring. And here I am and it's a cold autumn British morning. I'm sure you'd be finding it fascinating to see the frozen grass, the leaves turning golden on the trees. And it reminds me then that I have to think, wow, this is really special and lovely. And I I don't need to be just wishing I was in another part of the world. Let's just enjoy what's here. So that's what I've been trying to encourage that sort of mindset for other people to have. Yeah. And as you sort of, I think I was watching one of the recent videos you talked about the localized travels. I was like, huh, if I were to travel my local suburb, maybe I'll start by printing out the map, seeing the, the radius of the suburb of Sefton, maybe do a walk around the perimeter that would be one adventure maybe go to the local library and see if there's any old books on the history of sort of my suburb and then from there maybe five or six things may sort of spiral I, I guess tell me a bit about your sort of journey when you when you explored your local sort of area yeah, so I, I bought, uh, in the, the UK is covered with these these maps. They're essentially the map you'd use if you're going to go hiking in the mountains. And I think all countries have their own version of it. It shows the woods and the trees and the uh, and the hills, but it also shows the city streets and the railway lines and things. So I bought the one for where I live, which is just outside London. So it's not a very exciting map. There's some farmland, there's some towns, there's some factories. It's pretty normal and a bit boring. And my plan was that each week I would go out and explore just a one kilometer grid square. The map's divided up um, in, by latitude and longitude into 400 grid squares. And I'd go out once a week. I had to do it. It was a schedule once a week for a year to one single grid square. And I would get there and just try to see everything. And what everything meant would vary according to the place. So sometimes it was walking around a wood and learning about the nature. Sometimes it was in a street urban environments and learning about the history of what had happened in those places and I think what's interesting is that if you had gone to those places you would have seen different things to what I saw and the things that interested me might not be what interested you but it is a stepping off point towards diving deeper into whatever personally fascinates you so I did that once a week for a year 52 
outings around my map, trying to learn everything. That was the starting premise. It's a bit ambitious, but to learn everything in this grid square um, and then to take photographs and document that as well. And when I started the idea, I slightly worried that it'd be a bit boring. One small suburban map. I want to be going to Tasmania and exciting places. And here I was trapped on one small map. But as I started to pay attention, I learned that the more you notice, the more you find. And the more you find, the more there is to learn. And that soon one small map actually starts to feel gigantic. And I realized that I could not possibly begin to learn everything about my neighborhood in one year. And maybe I can't even learn everything about it in a lifetime. And therefore, although I would love to go traveling off to all these different parts of the world, real life stops that happening sometimes. So therefore, I can either be upset about that or I can be excited to think that one mile from where I live is some street or building or church or river that I might never have been to in my life before. And that's worth exploring. So um, it's about being excited about what is there rather than being regretful about the things that you don't have. What was the most interesting or are there any sort of key stories that stick out within those 52 weeks? So it, it wasn't really a very adventurous experience. It was a very interesting experience and it felt like I was exploring. But I have to confess, it didn't really feel like an adventure. It wasn't like, whoa, this is exciting. It was interesting. So one week I was out walking around a wood. It was a wood I'd been to quite a few times before, but I was walking around it, looking at the trees and all that sort of stuff. And then I came home and as I did every week, I would then Google about the stuff that I'd find, that I'd found and I'd learn about the science or the history or the folklore. And I learned that in this wood I'd been to, was a thing called a Dean hole. And I'd never heard of a Dean hole. What's a Dean hole? So then I start Googling that. And what was interesting about this project was that I'd learn about one thing and then I'd Google another thing and Google another thing. And suddenly three hours have gone by and I'm still a thousand pages down Wikipedia. So Dean holes were, say, a thousand years ago in Britain, people would dig a vertical tunnel down in a wood, um, quite narrow, vertically down. And then when they were underground, they'd hollow it out into to extract the 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 chalk the lime which they'd put on the fields to use as fertilizer and they did these did these vertical shafts uh, to so that they didn't waste the land above and also to stop the, otherwise their pit would just fill up with leaves so they dig these vertical things and then hollow it out and in this wood that I'd been in and in and I'd spent several hours there and I came home thinking I've seen everything in this wood there was apparently a Dean hole. So I had to go back to this wood again, but this time I took with me a climbing rope and a head torch and I found this hole. So there's a forest floor and then suddenly there's this black hole about less, maybe a metre wide, let's say, vertical hole in the forest floor, up to a thousand years old, I don't know exactly. And so then I, um, I had to tie the climbing rope onto a tree, put my light on and lower myself down into this cave. And that there, that when I was down there, it's pitch dark and all it, it was just a hollowed out place where people had extracted the, the, the limestone. But to think that people had made this a thousand years ago and that here was I down there away from the rainy British morning and the traffic going by just felt so exciting and uh yeah I would never have known I'd never had even heard of Dean Holes before and I certainly didn't know there was one just a few miles from my front door and importantly even though I thought I'd seen everything in that wood I hadn't I hadn't even seen this most fascinating of things so it reminded me that however much you try to see you're always going to miss 
so much. There's just an infinite amount of potential for wonder in every single map, if you look closely enough. That's such a beautiful story. One thing I've been sort of trying to sort of balance between is sort of, I have a small social media following, so I've been able to leverage that to get free accommodation or free activities and sort of different countries so last year when I sort of did a road trip of New Zealand I was able to get the car accommodation a bunch of different activities completely covered but then I found myself scheduled for the 13 days every day was two or three activities it was back to back I had to get to the next location because I had a night book there and it was so fun I had so many cool footage but it was so hard to breathe I felt like I was treading water I was like was this really an adventure I feel so tired by the end of it and I was like the next trip I do I'm gonna to have nothing planned so that the most recent trip I went to South Korea Mongolia and Hong Kong no plans and and that was freeing and I'll make plans on the day and a lot of interesting things would happen and it was very sort of impromptu and then now I have this Tasmania trip coming up tomorrow and I have I think four accommodations over the next 10 days scheduled in so now I have four spots I have to show up on time so it's like ah but then it's free and these really cool experiences that I wish I could have experienced but then I'm no longer free um, I guess the question is what's your thoughts on that how do you balance between the two if you have the ability to get cool experiences covered you'd want to do it but then you want to travel um with no plans at all yeah it's a compromise isn't it um there's, and there's no such thing as free is there there's you know there's no such thing as a free dinner you're like well i've got this free accommodation and this free activity but it's not free because it's taking a cost on you on your time on your opportunities to be spontaneous um it's turning your adventure into work but it's cool as well you get to do something that maybe you wouldn't be able to afford to do otherwise and also importantly hopefully that those activities are interesting to your social media audience so then that will grow and you'll start to leverage that more and get a bit more influence there and that can lead to other opportunities so I guess you need to ask yourself is this thing I'm doing work or is it vacation is it a holiday if it's a vacation a holiday then do whatever you want but if it's work then Maybe you've got to stop moaning and get on and do the work. But um, it's something that I often feel about my adventures is the, 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 the trips I go on are fantastic fun. People who see them on, say, Instagram might think, wow, that's my dream trip of a lifetime. So I'm very lucky and privileged to do this. But it's also, for me, work. So when I'm away on these trips, I'm constantly really thinking about how I can then use this experience later to essentially to make money, which sort of take sort of feels a bit dirty for an adventure. This is supposed to be a pure travel experience. And here am I trying to think how it will make me more famous and earn me more money. And that doesn't feel very nice. So it's a compromise for me that I have to gradually figure out uh, in my head. And I don't think there's any perfect solution. Sometimes you're willing to really work hard and just go for that and other times you resent it like Ugh, this is horrible I want to be free and just go my own way uh, which is fine but someone's got to pay the bills so it's a compromise and I guess you, you just got to gradually figure out each time you do it a balance a balance so that this trip to Tasmania is great fun and enjoyable and memorable and allows you the freedom to be spontaneous and to take the road less traveled and to stop and meet interesting people and to learn and grow yourself but equally you've got to those those fish behind you they're not going to get fed on their own you've got to pay for some fish food so yeah it's a compromise but it's also worth bearing in mind it's a pretty nice decision to be having to make of oh should i go and stay in this really nice hotel for free or not 
you're not going to get many sympathy votes on the big picture of things, are you? But it is, but I, I at least can sympathise with the conundrum. You're very right. Um, perspective and gratitude. Do you ever set yourself sort of pure holiday trips? Like, like I remember going to New Caledonia two years ago. Nothing was planned. Went in blind. I covered everything myself. But then I started talking to, like, I, I met some local tribe members and they were showing me to the, their tribe. And I was whipping out the camera. I was filming it all. I was like, oh, this is going to be such cool footage this is going to be amazing as like an adventurer and content creator sort of everything becomes content does it not or are there times where you're just like this is pure leisure no camera yeah how do you find that balance i think the only way i can find the balance is by just forcing myself to go somewhere with no camera but even then, if I'd gone had that experience of you with no camera, I'd then come home still with memories like, oh, well, maybe I can write a magazine article for this and and uh, and do that, or at least I can write about it on my blog because and that'll then attract some readers and so and so. So for me, everything is work always. So you know, I take my camera with me everywhere, mostly because I just love taking pictures. But equally. If I see something cool, I'm going to take a photo of it and then I'm going to come home and I'm going to upload it to my photography website. I'm going to write a blog about it. Everything is work for me. My life, my hobbies and my career are all completely and utterly entwined. And sure, sometimes it'd be nice to just be 100% on vacation. But equally, I've got one of the coolest jobs in the world. I get paid to just do cool stuff. So maybe I should stop moaning and get on with it. But yeah, for me, everything is work all the time. I'm sure other people are better at switching off, but I just, I've, I, I'm always on the go, 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 I think. Alistair, one thing I've noticed is you you are really good at like business and content and marketing. I sort of luckily sort of got into business and then sort of figured out marketing and then I got into more traveling and adventuring. So I was able to take the skill sets over. I guess, I don't know if it's true, but you probably started going on adventures and you figured out how you could monetize it and make it work. How did you sort of learn all the skill sets, blogging, PR, press releases, book writing, content creating? Um, how are we able to figure that all out, Alistair? It's interesting, isn't it, that we both do similar things and have similar passions, but we've come at them from different sides. Uh, the one thing I completely disagree with in what you said was that I'm good at business. The business side of stuff I'm awful at. I'm completely useless at it. And I also hate it as well. So I earn money roughly in three ways. Um, speaking events, uh, selling books, and then partnerships with brands of um either a sort of ambassador role or make content creation for a brand and they're how i pay for my life so for each one of those i have an agent now who does all the money side of things so if you want me to do a talk at your business you'd email me and i'd be like oh i hate talking about money it's embarrassing so i'd pass you on to my agent who's a very nice person but hopefully when she talked to you she would squeeze as much money out of you as possible which is what I secretly want to do, but I'm too nice to actually try and do that. So the stuff that I'm bad at, I get someone else to do for me. So the way I went about it all was that the thing for me, first of all, was adventure. I really love adventure. How can I have an adventure? I need some money. Okay, so my first adventure came just by working a normal job, saving up my own money and going have an adventure. That was great. But when I came home, I thought, oh, I want more adventure. Therefore, I need some money for this. And I don't really want to get a proper job because I really like adventure stuff. So how can I make some money from what I've done? And I think the really important thing here is that, first of all, you need a really interesting story. I think quite a lot of people think that they want to create content or be an influencer 
or earn money from adventure, but they haven't actually done the anything interesting yet. So the first thing to do is something really interesting. For me, that was four years cycling around the planet. When I got back, which I'd paid for myself, when I got back from that, suddenly I had a good story. So now I was in a position to start to write a book, to start giving talks at schools and to learn through practice, practice, practice to get better and better at speaking so that I could gradually start to increase how much money I charged. I began for free and then moved up to 50 pounds and then 100 pounds and creeping up like that. And then, um, which is nice, but if you want people to book you for your schools to give talks, then they need to know about you. How will people know about me? Okay, I need a website. And then uh, I had to then start learning how to blog. And then social media comes along. I was already blogging for years before, say, Twitter was invented. And then this new thing called Twitter started. Looks a bit ridiculous, but let's try it because it might be big. So I've signed up over the years to all sorts of social media things that have just disappeared. Um, Google Plus, for example. Um, so each one has just come through trying this out and then teaching myself by googling essentially everything i've done i've just learned through google or youtube really having big projects like four years cycling around the globe or sort of rowing across the atlantic or going through the desert has these sort of project and 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 things that you've wanted to change drastically now that you are a father and you have children and being away for large periods of time might be much more difficult yeah so i've definitely moved from doing the big fantastic but very selfish adventures to uh, a, a different sort of life now. It's why I've been doing the micro adventures. So that's certainly an influence on it. But the more recent influence that I'm feeling increasingly strongly is what's the point of adventure? Adventure is great. Of course, it's good fun. It's good for your personal development. But what's the point and the purpose beyond that? How can it actually be any use to the universe? And for me, this is manifesting itself through Um, being passionate about nature and the environment and the climate crisis and all those problems. And what I hope is that by encouraging people to go explore locally, to go and see what's happening to the forest five miles from where you live and how that's being infected, maybe then that will get people to be care about their local forest their local area and once you start to care about your local area you are then inspired to take some action to help it and once you're inspired to take some action to help a little bit close to home that then hopefully leads on to having a a wider passion for things uh, beyond your neighborhood so i think the, the real change for me between big adventures and the tiny little small stuff now is just trying to make it useful and in my view useful is getting people to care about nature and then change their actions to care for it and protect it and fix it you're right as you're saying that like yeah what is the purpose of adventure because like you know i want to go to africa i've never been to africa but at the same time australia is such a huge country I haven't been to like the countryside of perth darwin south australia there's so much of australia I haven't explored why do I want to go Africa? Okay, maybe I want to go Africa because it might be a different culture. I want to see sort of the, the sort of African Africans and in their tribes. And I guess I wouldn't see that. But then they're, they're probably Aboriginal tribes in Australia that I can explore. And it's much closer. Now I'm starting to ask these questions. Obviously, I don't have the answer to it now. Um, but, but what sort of answer have you sort of slowly come to? And, and what is it for me? Well, I think probably you can be greedy and have both. I mean, it's wonderful to go to Africa and see different ways of life and different animals and different foods, all that sort of stuff. I would I would urge anyone who's lucky enough to travel globally 
but also um you you're talking about places in australia that i've never been to i'd be so thrilled to visit anywhere in australia so i think you should also try and bear that in mind that when you're not on these big trips off to africa say then just appreciate and notice the things that are around you and enjoy that as a travel experience and then the third aspect i would add on to that is to try perhaps adventure in itself is i think that's a good enough reason to go it's just wow this is great but but if you can add a bit of purpose onto that what what can you do that will make the universe a bit better by doing that trip then i think that adds a wider value onto your own individual experience so when you go to somewhere how can you help make that place better or can you go away acquire knowledge and bring home that knowledge to make your own community better and your community of course might be the streets around you but more likely uh, for you it's your online community so what can you do through your social media media platforms to not just say oh here's this fantastic place in New Zealand it's a really expensive hotel which I got for free but to think of uh, something that you can add some value to make people's lives a bit better too and I think from the way and this is, definitely is not on the level of let's end cancer and solve uh, child poverty for me it's my adventures the purpose that I've tried to add to it is how can I help make it easier for other people to explore which is what got me onto doing micro adventures really of here are some ways that I've learned which you in your busy life can apply to help get you and your family and your friends out having an adventurous experience this weekend um, as I say it's not save, it's not solving cancer but it's trying to add a little bit of purpose to the selfish fun adventures Alistair how did you come across that purpose it's a very unique purpose of sort of your mission is to sort of make travel more accessible less intimidating to the everyday man that's a very unique approach I haven't seen any sort of adventure explorer sort of have that goal and purpose in mind I think it came about in two ways, really. The first was realizing just how wonderful these adventures were for me personally, the sort of personal developments, the, the things you learn about life and yourself through these experiences in the wild. That's a great, it's great. That's why I, I would urge lots of people to go and travel. You learn about yourself. And so through realizing how beneficial it had been to me, I suppose I then wanted to to share that. And I think that came because I, before I started adventuring, I trained to be a high school teacher. So, so I was quite conditioned then to getting my knowledge and trying to pass it on to kids and get them enthused about the stuff they were doing. And, and when I was beginning doing speaking, it was all about get take my experiences from the world and pass it on with enthusiasm to the kids. So I think I had built in that habit of just getting what I know and trying to pass that on to an audience. One thing you mentioned earlier about that intention, and it sort of made me realize you're right, like with this upcoming Tasmania trip starting tomorrow, like there is no intention. The, the initial catalyst was I had this $80 flight credit. So I, I just wanted to use it and Tasmania was sort of like nearby from Sydney. Um, but other than that, I usually travel, I guess, with the intention to learn and, and experience new experiences. But maybe this is, I'm going to sit down tonight and figure out what I want to sort of get out of this trip. Any, tr any advice when it comes to um, setting intentions for adventures? When I started to explore my, my local map this year, my intention was that I would do that in order to give other people ideas for how they could have adventures close to where they live. So I think that was my intention. But once I was actually out each week exploring these places, I realised that that wasn't my real passion anymore. I've spent a lot of time encouraging people to go ride their bicycle. And what was really interesting to me now was that nature is being destroyed and we're just 
not doing anything about it. And therefore that then became my intention and my passion. So what that means for you perhaps is that you don't have to go to Tasmania with an intention, but once you get there, be open-minded and curious and, and ponder what problems are there and what problems can I solve? And I think often a good way to do that is to find a problem in your own life and find a way to solve that. So going back to my case, that was realizing that although I'd been to all these different places around the world, I wasn't really connected with nature. I didn't really know much about nature. And of course, everyone loves nature. But if I was honest, I didn't really care about nature that much. It was nice because it made my photos look cool, but I didn't really feel connected to it. So the problem that I had was not being connected to nature. And then by really observing my neighborhood, I then overcame that problem. And then hopefully I can then encourage other people to do the same. So it's finding a problem in your own life or in the community you're in, working out a way to solve it and then sharing that to the world. Because you can rest assured that you won't be the only person with that problem, I think. As you sort of, you know, I recently finished Ranos Fine's most recent books and, and he talks about sort of growing older, he's sort of getting pain in his sort of, you know, all his joints and it's getting harder and harder for him to continue to run marathons. And he's sort of done all these crazy things and as age goes on, like his body is holding him back. How has your adventures or, or what's your relationship as with adventures as you've aged? So Ranulph Fiennes was one of my early inspirations when I was probably about 18 I read his one of his books thought this guy's crazy I want to do stuff like this so he's always been a big inspiration to me and I think everything he's done in his life is incredible but I also have looked at him in a sort of cautionary way two aspects one is that a friend of mine who's another adventurer um, he sent me this photograph years and years ago we both do a lot of talks and events and sometimes they're great and glamorous and exciting but quite often they're in a slightly rubbish place to a disappointingly small audience and the technology and the camera project is a bit useless and no one knows how to set it up and you're sort of trying to fit USB cables in and it's a bit ugh, depressing. Anyway, my friend sent me this picture of Ranald Fiennes, aged probably about 60, down on his hands and knees, trying to connect a, a computer to a thing. And and I took, and what I took, and it was quite a funny picture, but what it took, what I took from that was thinking, ooh, I don't want to be telling the same story for 60 years like Ranulph Fiennes has made an excellent career of. And um, I went to see him do a speech last year. It was great. Uh, but I also thought from that, when I'm 60 or 70, I don't want to have to be earning my living by running yet more marathons. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want to be doing that. It's worked for him, but it's not what I want. So what I've learned then about ageing is to try to just accept the reality of the age that I am now so not to um, not to just wish that I was really young and pretend that I was really young just to accept that now is what I am now and the things that interest me now are different to what they were 10 years ago and I imagine in 10 years time if we were having this conversation again I'd be talking about something totally different and that's fine to just allow my life to evolve and flow and not to fret too much about it and in terms of adventuring not to try to remain cemented in an artificial past so I'm getting old, we all are, uh, and I'm getting a bit soft and lazy. Some of the hardcore crazy stuff I did 20 years ago, I couldn't be bothered to do that now. I don't have that drive and the determination to suffer. So I just have to accept that that was then, this is now, and now I'd much rather just go for a walk around my local woods 
take a few photographs, have a cup of coffee, and then come home and write about it. As you sort of grow older and your interests change, like for example, you want to do more local adventures, you want to sort of talk about the environment. I guess these topics definitely, I don't know, I might be wrong, will have a less appeal, reach a smaller audience. Um, how do you go about sort of changing topics and sort of keeping that momen momentum so that by 60, you're not doing speaking gigs about adventures you did 20 years ago? That's a really, really good question. And I don't, and, and a perceptive one as well, because it's something that I think about quite a lot. So when I first started trying to make a career out of adventure, what I thought I needed to do was basically become Ronald Fiennes. I need to be, do big, tough, crazy stuff, but also I need to be able to use Instagram that Ronald Fiennes can't do. And that's how I will then start to build a career out of this. I'll be the next Ronald Fiennes. I'll be this big, tough guy and I'll earn my living from that. And people will press like a lot and that will make me feel good about myself. And then I started to do micro adventures, which were these deliberately small adventures. And I was really worried then. That was a big pivot from, think, from saying big adventures, what you have to do to now I was saying, well, let's just go and sleep on your local Local hill this weekend let's go camping and I was really worried about that and I thought I would lose my audience and then I'd have to start again but actually what happened is that more people were interested in micro adventures than yet another middle-class white man showing off about how tough he was so my audience actually grew when I started to do these really small seemingly boring little adventures now 10 years on again I'm at another big pivot point now so now as you've picked up I'm now talking about nature and then the, the environment and and I'm what and I don't know how that's going to turn out but I worry that yeah, that's not as interesting as talking about a crazy adventure. So maybe my audience is going to drop off. And the challenge to me is how can I take my existing audience and convince them that, yeah, adventures are great, but we also need to fix the planet. So don't go and leave me. Come with me on this new direction. And it's actually too early to tell how that's going to go. The, the book that I've written now local is much more about nature and the environment and it's only just the first few people are just reading it now and so far I've had two emails about the book the first was I hate this book I thought it was going to be about adventure but all you go on about is vegan stuff I hate this so I've lost a fan there the other email I've had was someone reading it saying wow this is a real breath of fresh air it's about exploring but also this nature stuff's really important so I don't yet know how it's going to go. Is the audience going to come with me or are they going to drop off? I don't know. I hope they come with me from my career point of view. But ultimately, I'm going to do what feels important and right to me, uh, not just chase the likes on YouTube and the ticks and the, all that sort of stuff. I'm doing what feels important to me. And if the audience wants to come with me, great. If they don't, then I have to begin again. But whenever I'm trying to decide anything about growing a career, there's the temptation to head towards vanity, to think, oh, I'll do this because I'll get loads of likes and all these people on the internet will tell me I'm amazing, which is ridiculous, but very tempting. And wh what I always come back to is that it's an essay on the internet by a guy called Kevin Kelly called 1000 True Fans. Um, have you Are you familiar with this? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's it, in essence, the idea is that if you can find a thousand people who will, who love what you do, and every year they'll buy one of your books and come to one of your talks and therefore you get $30. From that, you get 30 times a thousand, $30,000. That's enough to live. You don't need a million ticks on Instagram. You need a thousand true fans who are really passionate about the same things that you are. And I find that essay really liberating because it reminds me that I can just start with a small, loyal little audience and maybe that's enough. So 
who knows what direct what will happen now i'm talking about nature rather than big adventures but sorry it's a very long answer the short answer is i have no idea whether people are going to come with me or not but i hope they do Alyssa, I love the sort of self-awareness. Like as you were sort of talking about that, the thing that I thought of was like, wow, like when I got into entrepreneurship, I was sort of looking at the Elon Musk, the Bill Gates, the Richard Branson's. They're working 10 hour days, seven days a week, but then they're also having cool lifestyles. And I'm like, man, like I can't do a 15 hour day. Like, man, some days I wake up and I just don't have it in me and I'm not motivated. I'm not disciplined to push through that that pain and, and get work done with throughout that pain I'm feeling in my head. And then there's this sort of identity crisis where it's like, man, like I don't want to work, but I know I have to work because all these other entrepreneurs work and that's how they got to where they are. And there's a sense of relief hearing you sort of pivot and go down your own route and not sort of be that adventure, big challenges person that you would see. Uh, yeah, I think it's really important to bear in mind the comparisons that you're making. So um, let's say for me, it's like Randall Fiennes is this most famous and epic of explorers. In my heart of hearts, I know I'm never going to do the amazing things that he's done. You're an entrepreneur, you're working hard, you're doing well, but you're not going to be as successful as Elon Musk or Bill Gates. Or by the way, if you are, remember me, but you're probably, you're almost certainly not going to be. That doesn't mean that you're, you fail. Maybe you like painting and art. You're not going to be as good as Leonardo da Vinci. That's fine. The problem we all make is that we measure our success by these freakish outliers. And that's ridiculous. Much more useful and realistic and healthy is to think, Have I? am I getting enough from what I'm doing? So I had a newsletter a while ago called The Working Adventurer. And I learned about this from a, I was listening to a radio show and it was someone who described themselves as a working artist. And what they meant by that was that they did art and they sold it and they earned enough from that to make a living. I'd never heard of this person. They were nowhere near as good as Leonardo da Vinci, but they were a working artist. They were making a living from what they enjoyed. And I found that such a powerful concept. So I now consider myself a working adventurer. I do some adventures. I write some books. Some people buy them. It's enough to pay for my life. Brilliant. How lucky am I? And so then I suppose in the business sense, it's, oh, I really enjoy business, being an entrepreneur, this sort of stuff. I do some of that and I earn enough money to pay for my life. I'm That's brilliant. That is success. So yeah, if you're a working entrepreneur and it's, and you're going on that then that's brilliant and don't don't beat yourself up thinking you have to be the next elon musk because as we're seeing with his life story now as he goes into all sorts of weird craziness be careful what you wish for do you still write a weekly newsletter alistair and, and how do you go about that for your email list yeah i do i do a newsletter um i actually have a couple of different ones so i i i really love <laughs> this is quite nerdy but i really love automated email scheduling thing so this working adventurer essentially if people sign up for it week one they get the first episode and then week two the next one arrives and i several years ago now i wrote all of these different pieces uh which will fit together over the course of about a year and then halfway through you know if if people haven't been opening them for a while and they're falling out of love with it then the automated system will send them a different thing like hey here's some stuff to get you back into it so i love that because i did the work and that's now out there and people can sign up today and i don't need to do any more work on it ever so if i can automate my email life so that i can actually just be out in the woods brilliant but i also do a a real life newsletter which is about things that have happened recently 
Um, and I personally believe that is my most important marketing tool because Facebook might is dis- is losing popularity. Instagram might fade away. Who knows? But my email newsletter feels to me that that is good and solid and people will be reading emails in 20 years. So I work really hard on that, uh, but I don't, I don't do it every week. I try and do it roughly every two weeks or so when I have something to say and I really enjoy doing it, what I try to do in it is to give a little bit of an update about me because hopefully the people are like, ah, Alice Humphries, I want to know a little bit about you. Uh, I use a tiny little bit of it to try and say, hey, please buy one of my books. But whenever you're sending emails out, you need to give more than you're requesting back. So I try and give a lot of interesting content and links and other stuff that people hopefully enjoy and they will then feel that they're benefiting from my newsletter rather than just being used by me trying to just sell them stuff so that's the rough principle that I go for on those um and I try and keep it regular enough so that it becomes a habit for people to read I love that other stuff what are the tell me a bit about the books you have in your background what type of books and contents do you consume nowadays yeah so i i work in a little shed um and it's got a big wall of books that uh so books have always been a big part in in my life for a long 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 time i read a lot of travel books travel expeditions adventure um got some Randall fines books up here all sorts of stuff about uh, uh, climbing at mountains south pole all those sort of things but over i guess uh as my own interest have evolved these days i read much more about uh, nature uh, and the environment and um, how we can go about fixing that and hopefully I've read plenty of depressing books about the environment uh, but I'm now trying to find books that are hopeful and encouraging and optimistic as well so yeah reading's a big thing for me I read I'd say at least two hours every single day so it's a, a big part of my self-education. That's sort of as you've pivoted towards these different topics and you're reading less adventure books do you still have sort of bucket list destinations that you want to go to and and just sort of you're only you, you'll go there if the opportunity comes or it's going to happen in your lifetime yeah i still dream of big adventures for sure up on the ceiling above me here i've got a huge map of the world um and i love to just look at that and realize how few places i've been um, i cycled around the planet but i've seen almost nothing and that's so thrilling but at the moment my my life so my family life means that i'm essentially homebound and exploring close to home um and my my personality is that if I was if I had this sort of bucket list of places to go, I'd be quite frustrated and wanting to get there. So I've consciously tried to remove any sort of ideas of bucket list. And I just have this warm glow knowing that there is a wonderful world out there beyond my local map waiting for me when the time is right. But I don't have any big plans at the moment. That's awesome. Do you have any recent discoveries that you've sort of been implementing to your day to day life? Oh, gosh. Um, I think just in terms of daily life, three things that have significantly helped me are to make sleep a compulsory part of my life. And I've realized that if I feel tired in the morning, the problem isn't to do with waking up in the morning is that I went to bed too late the night before the problem comes early so I I've made I used to think that sleep was for losers but I'm now a big fan of sleep and then the other two I suppose are linked if ever I think oh I'm so stressed and frustrated with my life I'm going to drink some beer and have some wine to relax the alternative is go to the gym or go for a run so trying to incorporate regular running or or exercise as a way of sort of de-stressing 
after a busy day um, and just making that a compulsory built-in part of my schedule. That then means that I don't have to use willpower to make myself go for a run. Like, shall I go for a run or shall I watch television? Oh, the willpower battle. I just have it. It's just fixed in my routine. Yeah, of course, I go for a run. And then that without having to make that those complicated uh, anguish decisions in my head. So yeah, sleep and exercise as a compulsory part of my life have been really helpful for me. Talking about that stress, and that sort of not knowing what to do like right now after this call i'm like okay do i pack my bag do i clear all my sd cards do i look at the itinerary and refine that do i clear emails of the accommodation and, and it's just like oh any tips well i think i think writing i i personally would like to i write down everything that i need to do um and i do that because that then just empties my brain so ah oh, it's all on paper and then look at down the list and ask compare whether these things are important or urgent and there's a really nice difference between important and urgent and normally i prioritize important do the important things but right now i suppose you also have some urgent things to do because you've got a limited amount of time and you have to pack some clothes and you have to sort out those sd cards but the itinerary you can probably sort that out later so yeah important versus urgent and empty your brain out and and then get some sleep. Great tip. Last question, um, Alistair, what's your goal and I guess focus over the next six months? Over the next six months, my goal depends on whether anyone is interested in my new book, Local, and the direction that that's taking me. Hope, my hope is that people are interested in it, and then I can really start pushing hard on social media about some of these issues that feel really important to me if it turns out that nobody is interested in this at all then i need to find a new plan um so i'm in a bit of a limbo position at the moment and while i'm in that limbo i need to get on with writing my new book um i i, I usually try and have a few books on the go at different stages so i'm currently writing a, a book for children which i my plan is to try and get the first draft of it finished by christmas that is amazing. Alistair, where can people get more of you? Where can they get the, the latest book about local travel? Um, and where can they just access everything that you have to offer? Well, my book, so local and then microadventures and books about my, my bigger journeys, uh, hopefully they're wherever you buy your books on Amazon or uh, all those different places. Um, and then uh, my name's Alistair Humphreys and therefore you should find me on whichever social media channel you're interested in except tiktok so i'm too old for that and then you can sign up for my email newsletter at alistairhumphreys.com beautiful we'll link everything in the description below and we'll put it up on the screen but yeah thank you so much for your time alexa i really appreciate it. i can see how relatable of an adventurer you are um, you're so down to earth and at the same time you're so passionate about what you do and you're definitely a chameleon where you can sort of adjust to different like you've sort of adjusted to my energy on this podcast so i really appreciate your time today and it was such a fun hour well thank you for having me and uh, good luck with your adventure tomorrow thank you so much guys if you guys got value from this episode please let me know your thoughts please send me a message i want to get as much feedback as possible and i'll see you guys next week with another episode peace